From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. These stories are true. Wonderfully haunting stories. Much of what we remember about our history, completely fictional stories, is either mistaken or fabricated. But the truth is even more haunting. That is, if we remember it at all. What are the voices we hear on radio? So many of them are the perpetuated voices of the dead. You will find that ghosts will begin to talk to you and may give you messages if you want them. Why don't you play with me? You hear it? Yeah, that was a good one. I heard that. Sorry, as I talk over it. It's the perpetuation of the voices of the dead. There has always been a tendency to hide the less savory moments from our past. The ghost may have a message and may want you to have it. And what I have witnessed was incredible. When you're young... And you hear people talk about things like World War II or desegregation or maybe this riot or that assassination. It all just seems so remote, ancient, so far away it has absolutely no bearing on the present. Then you get older and you realize that big events and cultural phenomena have everything to do with who we are and how the next generation is shaped. Today on ReSound, a sound portrait of living history four small towns in central Massachusetts that were evacuated, flattened, and then flooded to create the biggest drinking water reservoir of its day. Even though the evacuation began 70 years ago, the people who lived in the towns have clear, sometimes bitter memories of the event that took away their homes, schools, and essentially life as they knew it. Their story is told by Sean Cole, a documentary producer in Boston. It's called Haunting the Quabbin. It was a very interesting little town. I remember a double-day store. They had a store. We had a hotel. I remember the common. They had church. Schools. Schools. Methodist church. They had town town hall. hall. You'd think this was a natural lake if you didn't know better. It's Boston's drinking water, a 400-billion-gallon reservoir called the Quabbin. Quabbin is a Nipmuc Indian word that means something like place with a lot of water in it. There wasn't this much water here back when it was Nipmuc territory, back when it was territory, just a low valley cut by a river. Then the white man came and built towns and then destroyed the towns in order to make this. Today they call the Quabbin and the land around it an accidental wilderness. It wasn't meant to be this pretty, but it is. It's serene, surrounded by trees, more than 100 miles of clean shoreline. The size of it alone seems beyond human invention. Hills jut up out of the water like lock monsters. In fact, Standing here at the lip of the Quabbin, you'd never guess that this same water will soon flow from the faucets of more than 40 cities and towns an hour east of here. On an alphabetical list of those cities and towns, number one is Arlington, where I happen to live. This is my bathroom. Never thought I'd say that on the radio.
When I first heard that the towns of Dana, Greenwich, Prescott, and Enfield were flooded to build the reservoir, I imagined a little Atlantis down there, that the water coursed through some intact village on its way to my faucet. You hear stories, like when the level of the quabbin gets low enough you can see a church steeple. Wonderfully haunting stories. Completely fictional stories. But the truth is even more haunting, especially for the people who used to live in the towns. And the more they talk about Dana, Greenwich, Prescott, and Enfield, the more the four towns tend to meld into one town, an idyllic place they can still rebuild in their minds. It was a very small town. Didn't worry much about walking wherever you wanted to go in those days. We had a little ice cream shop under the Barlow Block. Dickinson's store used to be at the corner. More or less a farming community at the time. One of the main farm products was, was apples. My father peddled ice in all those towns. My father had a big orchard in Greenwich. Enfield proper in North Dana and around. was the largest of the four towns that were discontinued. Prescott, I think, is one of, was one of the most beautiful places because the view from our farm was spectacular. You could see Mount Wachusett and Manadnock and the river. The Swift River. It's three branches defining the valley, giving it its name. The middle branch of the Swift River ran right through the heart of Enfield. Uh, it was the east branch of the Swift River. It made a cut into the bank of sand, so it was a perfect swimming hole. It was deep enough so you could dive into it. It was wonderful. The river was cold and clear. The train that ran parallel with that river right through the towns it was called, called the Rabbit. Rabbit. Why'd you call it the Rabbit Train? Well, it had something like 29 stops and 39 miles. And the Rabbit left in 36, and then we knew we were doomed then. This is where my grandmother and my father's mother lived. And then this little house right here behind My name is Robert Wilder. I was born in Enfield, Massachusetts. I left there in 1938. Now this is all under 107 feet of water. So in order to go home again, I, uh, I would have to uh, have scuba gear. Like a lot of people who used to live in the Swift River Valley, Bob Wilder never moved too far away. He lives three towns over from where his hometown used to be, in a little white house stuffed with Enfield memorabilia. Here's the one I wanted to show you. I was telling you about the... Uh, Stacks of papers, the family photos, lining the walls and piled up in folders by his armchair. My stuff is everywhere. <laughs> you know what? Just understand that this is how I... Uh, I have so many things, all my upstairs is filled, too. Competing for wall space in the dining room is a framed picture of George W. Bush, which hangs next to a wide array of medals and badges Bob earned as a Marine in the Korean War. He supports the president, he says, but he doesn't trust him. He doesn't trust any politician, not since the Boston political machine destroyed his town nearly 70 years ago. We were driven away, alienating us with the people in, to the east of us in Boston, and it will always be that way in, in my family. Always we will. I never go to Boston. I would never go to Boston if my life depended on it because there's so much anger at what they did and the unfeeling. There was no safety nets. We were just thrown out. This is what happened. In the mid-1800s, Boston's population was skyrocketing and needed water. A lot of water. The city tapped all of the potable bodies of water nearby. Jamaica Pond, Long Pond, the Sudbury River. 
At the turn of the century, it even commandeered six and a half miles of land in four other towns, flooded it with water from the Nashua River. The result was a 64 billion gallon reservoir called the Wachusett. But they were going to need more, a lot more, and they knew where to get it. The engineers looked to the west and they saw this huge river the three forks of the Swift River and the huge volumes of water that was delivered. Volumes of water flowing through the Swift River Valley, which was essentially a massive bowl split down the middle by a giant hill. The engineers figured out that if they dammed the river in just two places, that bowl would fill up. Any altitude, the altitude was over 500 feet above Boston. So an engineering mind very quickly says, well, if you can deliver that to Boston, you won't have to pump it. There was just one problem. 2,500 people happened to be living there. I'm Lois Barnes, and when I was born, my parents were living in Prescott. There was a big engineer period. Everybody was building dams, dams for irrigation, dams for this, and, and so forth and so on. It was a, a period of uh, exploiting resources. My name is Harvey Dickinson, and I was born in Greenwich, uh, which is now underwater in Corbin. It had been in the works for many, many years, prior to the time they actually started to do this. And it was a perfect place to build a reservoir. I Earl Cooley. I lived in Dana from up until 1938, and I was uh, 13 years old when we left. My mother said she remembered them talking about it when she was only a teenager. It was way back then that they started talking about taking the towns to make water for Boston. Bob Wilder, Lois Barnes, Harvey Dickinson, and Earl Cooley were all born after plans for the Quabbin had already been set in motion. But the reality of it didn't sink in right away. Yes, people in the valley were outraged when word of the project first filtered back to them in the late 1890s. A few even pulled up stakes and left. Except nothing happened and nothing continued to happen for almost 30 years. Not only that, the man who represented three of the towns in the state legislature, a Protestant minister named Roland Sawyer, kept assuring his constituency that a lot of them would be able to keep their homes. And later, when we had to go, and he was confronted, he says, well, he says, uh, you know, you win some. And, like, we had lost that one. This was our elected representatives, and he was a Democrat. That says it all. <laughs> you can see why uh, when Betty Howe Lincoln says her father, who's the postmaster, used to sit around the table and say, damn Boston Democrats. Well, that was a frequent, we had different words for it, I can't say uh, in, this, in this thing, but... I can. The word is bastards. Boston bastards. Finally, after years of site visits and committee meetings and epic legislative bickering, the Boston Bastards passed the Swift River Act in April of 1927, appropriating tens of millions of dollars to turn the valley into drinking water. More residents trickled out of the valley at that point, but many stayed on, waiting for the state to come and buy up their property. Some even sold their houses and land to the state and then rented them back until the very end. The valley was their home, after all. It was all they knew. It was like yesterday when my old grandmother, I was living with her, she came home, she always wore an apron, a cotton bib apron, and she was rolling it up in her hands. And when she did that, we knew it was a disaster, something was real wrong, because that was her expression of nervousness. And she says, uh, well, we've got to go. 
and we our eyes lit up. We were all excited. Where are we going? She said, we're moving. That was my childhood, is listening to people talk about who was moving. Lois Barnes. How soon they were moving, where they were moving, who didn't want to move. Made me a radical. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> How so? Well, because it, it made me feel that the state could not be trusted, that they took advantage of people, that the process by which the valley was taken was not a democratic process. For instance, the state is said to have shortchanged many valley residents on their property. Earl Cooley. They just come around and they would look the property over and say, well, we give you so much money and that was it. And back in around 1936, they had men coming out from Boston starting to clear the land. And this might have been the gravest insult the Swift River Valley had to endure. The government didn't even hire the locals to take their own towns apart. Instead, it imported strangers from Boston to do it. The locals were so incensed by this that they invented a new slur for the men who came to tear down their buildings and chop down their trees. They were called woodpeckers. The Boston woodpeckers. You're talking about Curly's woodpeckers? I am. Curley was Governor James Michael Curley, formerly mayor of Boston and the king of political patronage. He traded the much-needed Depression-era woodpecker jobs for legislative support of his state budget. Ten years later, he was convicted of mail fraud, but I digress. Why did they call them the woodpeckers? Well, that's about how they handle an axe. How did they handle an axe? Terribly. You know, a man with an axe knows how to maintain it and a man with a saw knows how to use a two-man saw. And these people didn't know how to do either. And so they pecked away at their job, and it took them far longer to accomplish the same task that a local did. Bob Wilder says the state ultimately had to hire the locals to cut down all the four-foot stumps the woodpeckers left behind. By the spring of 1938, the population of the Swift River Valley had dwindled to just a few hundred. Prescott had all but shut down by then. One by one, Dana, Enfield, and Greenwich held their final town meetings. At this point, Harvey Dickinson's family had already moved away. But on April 27th of 1938, his parents went back to Enfield for one last visit. The last thing they went to in the valley was the fireman's ball. And, and that was a bitter end. I have to find it. That's the last dance. The last dance in Enfield. Yes. As a matter of fact, I had that blown up because when I talk to school kids, I say, this is the last social function in my little town. That's the town hall just before it's torn down. There were so many foreigners from outside of Enfield that came into the dance that the folks from Enfield had a dance out on the grass because there wasn't room for them. And that was a very bittersweet occasion. I mean, everybody's standing there singing old Lang Syne and bawling their eyes out because... This was the end. There's nothing, nothing more. Hard to imagine how they felt. I had to stay home and take care of the chickens. At midnight, the night of the ball, Enfield and the rest of the Swift River Valley towns officially ceased to exist. Those still gathered in the old town hall held a moment of silence and then continued dancing and crying for another two hours. Almost 70 years later, the story of the farewell ball still gets to people. Not too long ago, 
A musician named Mark Arelli wrote a song about the ball and played it at a gathering of former Valley residents, some of whom cried all over again. Come, come take my hand, twirl to the plan, round the old town hall. We're listening to Inside Out, Haunting the Quabbin, from WBUR in Boston. It's the story of four towns in central Massachusetts that were raised and flooded to create a reservoir for Boston and the surrounding areas. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Let's get back to Sean Cole's documentary, Haunting the Quabbin. When we left off, the four towns of Dana, Greenwich, Prescott, and Enfield, Massachusetts, had officially become untowns, slated for demolition so they could be replaced by a reservoir. April 28, 1938, was the day the towns officially died, but on April 29th, there was still business to attend to. For one thing, the children of the valley were still in school. Now there's the schoolhouse that was taken the last day of school, this one here. Where are you? <laughs> right on the end. <laughs> yeah. This is Florence May Avery, that former resident of Dana. Of she says the valley was so drained of people by 1938 that, uh, that her classmates numbered almost Dana. nil. There was eight or nine of us, and we all took our, had to clean our desks out, so we had took all our books and all that home with us that day. That was the end of our school year. And so you, you saw them tear the, the schoolhouse oh, yes. down? That was, the schoolhouse was being door, torn down when we were there. Yeah. Every building and home that wasn't being used anymore was either ripped down or lifted off its moorings and moved. The dismantling of the valley continued all year and well into the next. Earl Cooley talks about cleaning piles of old chimney bricks and selling them 50 cents for a thousand. Harvey Dickinson says he and his father went back to the valley at one point to salvage wood for a new chicken house. We used to go over to the valley once in a while. We could, you know, folks would drive over to see what was happening, but that folks didn't really want to go back much. They didn't want to see it, the destruction. Why didn't they want to see the destruction? Well, how'd you like to go home today and find your house missing? And everything you knew, just gone. There was nothing left. There was not a bush, not a tree, not a house, nothing. It was a moonscape. It was awful-looking mess. But Bob Wilder and Lois Barnes did go back to see the destruction. They tell the same story about what happened after the valley was leveled. At the end of it, we would go over and watch, and they would pile up the piles, not only of buildings that were knocked down, but of the brush that had been cut down. They would push brush, buildings, anything that was left into a pile and light a match. They would set that alight, and we'd go at night, and I think the best description uh, would probably be, it was like stepping into hell, because the whole valley was a fire. It was fire, fire, all, all the time, and smoke. It was a real, real feeling of, you know, this is the end. <laughs> this is the end. <laughs> but it was heartbreaking, too, because now for the first time, 
looking at the denuded land, you could see the bed of the railroad track, you could see the foundations of the houses, you could see the path of the river so clear, so well defined, and it didn't look so large. The valley looked much smaller because it wasn't filled with things. The last tunnel letting water out of the Swift River Valley was finally blocked in August 1939. Legend has it that there were still a few people living in the valley when the water started to rise, but at least one Quabbin historian says those stories are just stories. It took seven years for the valley to fill up with water, the first few drops flowing toward Boston in June of 1946. The dislocation of valley inhabitants was constantly in the news back when it was happening. Over the years, though, the stories receded into an obscure footnote. Now and then, a new book or newspaper article will come out, documenting the old towns. But other than that, surviving residents of the Swift River Valley find themselves holding on to their lost home in any way they can. Bob Wilder, with his piles of pictures and articles. To have lost something that you can't ever regain is, is the thing that leaves that vast hole that I can't seem to fill that I'm looking for an answer. Why? What could we have done differently? What if I had not been born there? What if I had lived somewhere else? Uh, what, what would I be thinking? What would my values have been at this point in my life? Harvey Dickinson with the Swift River Valley Historical Society, a whole museum devoted to the towns. I'm on uh, kind of a board of trustees. We uh, are open during the summer from uh, June until October. We have guided tours, we have artifacts, we have memories of the valley. We have a lot of stuff here. Now there's one thing over here. Most of the stuff is kept in a carriage shed on the museum's tiny campus in New Salem, Massachusetts. Harvey showed me around, shuffling past heaps of things. One wall was covered in old railroad and post office signs. There's North Prescott, Prescott and Enfield. Greenwich, Enfield, Prescott. A 1929 Ford fire truck from Dana sat in the middle of the room, surrounded by contraptions so primitive I couldn't figure out what they did. And this is the most primitive here. That's a washing machine, believe it or not. A little corn cutter here. This is a honey extractor. These are winnowing machines. Some of these things come from local auctions where they're listed as quabbin pieces. You'd think the river of stuff would have dwindled by now, but Harvey told me it hasn't. It's as though the valley is still trying to reconstitute itself, summoning its scattered parts to one of the few places where their significance is appreciated. We made a little schoolroom here, and this might represent a schoolroom in the valley. But anyway, there's some school bells. They call you back to class. This is the bell bring me back to uh, class. So a lot of the, a lot of the, I can't say a lot, people who did live in a valley like to come back and see these things. They can relive some of their childhood here. Because it seems like they can't do that anymore. Well, the thing that bothers me uh, is that I can't go and take my children and my grandchildren, even my great-grandchildren, back to where I spent my first early years. Can't show them the old swimming hole. Can't show them my father's store. Can't show them where I lived. It's all covered up. 
this is a way of going back, visiting a museum, and that's what the museum is all about, to preserve the history of the valley. <coughs> the way it affected me... Again, Lois Barnes. ...was that I didn't go back. I didn't go back until I was in, in my 60s. But wh why didn't you go back for so long? Because, well, who knows why. I think there was a, a feeling that I'd lost something important. And the thing I lost was a sense of community. And I think that I spent my life building other communities, like cooperative households and the Tuesday Tea, which addresses that problem. The Tuesday Tea is essentially a perpetual valley reunion. Lois helped get the tradition going in the mid-80s with a public information and advocacy group called Friends of Quabbin. Every other Tuesday, former Valley residents would gather at the Quabbin Visitor Center in Ware, Massachusetts, and reminisce. In part, Lois wanted everyone to start telling their stories out loud so she could record them for an oral history project. We ourselves were running the milk down here to the railroad station and ship into Boston. My dad... He said he wanted to raise a turkey to have, and we got into business, and we supplied the Highland Hotel with our fresh turkeys after we got established. And we raised potatoes, and we would have to grade the potatoes, and he mm -hmm. would sell them to our mammoths. We'd go from farm to farm and finish their husking, and they'd have a red ear in there once in a while, and you could kiss a girl. Every brother had a cow of their own when they got to a certain age. The Tusi Tea experience was very amazing to me because people would come every single week. And they would come when it was snowing or, or when it was, you know, hurricaning. And what they wanted was that sense of being in a community again. Even though they were from all different communities, there was still that, that sense of, of connecting over the fact that they had a past that Coopin was part of. No, she's not all there. She's out here. <laughs> the Tuesday teas are still happening at the Coopin Visitor Center, so I went to one in August of 2003. The room's nothing much, like a cross between a teacher's lounge and a park ranger's office. There's a long table in the middle, a little kitchen off to the side where two volunteers were getting the refreshments ready. Dessert that day was an ice cream cake with the words Happy Birthday Tuesday Teas written on the top. Whatever that meant, Bob Wilder was absolutely giddy about it. Happy birthday to us. I asked what the occasion was. A volunteer said every August they celebrate the birthdays of all the Tuesday tea goers who've had birthdays over the summer. Bob said it had also been 15 years to the month since the Tuesday teas began. He's buoyant at these events, and you can understand why. It's a whole afternoon of talking about something he loved and lost with people who actually know what he means. Except when we first got to the visitor center, he was the only one there who'd ever lived in the valley. But then Lois Barnes arrived, much to Bob's delight. Ta-da! Oh, hi. 21 gun salute. <laughs> Hi, good to see you. Hi, Lois. Hi. So how are you doing, my dear? I'm doing fine. I'm Lois and Bob stand and talk to each other sweetly for a minute. He says he missed her at the last meeting when he and his wife were the only ones who showed up. Lois says she's had some trouble with her ticker, 
a little fibrillation, and soon they're comparing heart conditions and talking about their medical bills. But even this conversation leads back to the valley in the end. I liked it back when you went to Dr. Seeger's and you saw Dr. Seeger and we'd take one of, he loved duck, and we'd take one of the big white ducks and tie a string around his neck and we'd walk a mile dragging that poor duck behind us, you know, and tie him to Dr. Seeger's porch and knock on the door and say, this is for the bill, so we'd get a big white duck for a two dollar bill. Yeah, and he'd make house calls in those days, it was wonderful. Yeah, wow. Well, looks like we're the party. Only three of the eight people in the room actually grew up in the valley. Bob, Lois, and a woman named Betty Howe Lincoln. The rest are fellow travelers or volunteers. When we sit down, Bob grabs a copy of a new book about the Quabbin and starts leafing through it, showing me pictures, telling me some of the same stories he told me before. My house here now is under 107 feet of water. Since I first met Bob, there was this question I'd been meaning to ask him, but I was never exactly sure how to put it. And I couldn't quite get it out when we were sitting there at the table together. Still, I think he understood what I was trying to say. It was 65 years ago, the fact that there's still, you know... Yeah, it's, that's, that's, 65 years ago was not a long time in my life, because I wake up every morning and look in the mirror and see the same face I saw 65 years ago. And as long as the brain is working, the brain is working the same way it did 65 years ago. And I actually find myself at night, I'll lay there, and I, I begin to remember things that I had not remembered in, in 65 years, like the, the shape of a tool or uh, the name of a tool or when I first learned what something was. All of a sudden, a new connection is made from an old memory. And, and uh, it, it's startling and it's wonderful. Ah, oh, what was his name? At the store in uh, Hall, uh, they they uh, they rented a place from Hall, and they used to perform out there in this little ice puddle they had, and they'd do all these acrobats. We'd all go sit down in the snow pile and watch it. You you ever do that? I never stayed there for long lengths of time. We went we went to Enfield for Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner. Toward the end of our stay, I overhear the volunteers talking about plans for the next meeting, and I walk over. As it turns out, they've decided to drop the number of Tuesday teas down to one a month. There just aren't enough people left to sustain a meeting every other week, they say. There's nobody showing up now. I mean, it's silly, to, you know. So I would, the first of September, but we're having our picnic, 26th. Well, you didn't expect to get this kind of an interview, did you, huh? Well, you got to remember, we're getting on an age. Harvey Dickinson. And I was just a kid when I left, and I'm 80 years old, and who knows? I've heard estimates of how many people that actually were natives, but that lived in the valley, are left. Very few. I heard somewhere there's around 200 people that were born in the valley that are still alive. In a way, these 200 people are like libraries collapsing in slow motion. There's only so much time left that the breathing, flesh-and-blood memory of the Swift River Valley will be around. And while they're doing their best to pass the story on, how many people living in the Boston area have ever heard of the Swift River Valley? Or for that matter, of the Quabbin Reservoir? I tell you what I have fun doing. When I go to Boston, I ask everybody where the water comes from. You should hear the answers. They haven't a clue. For all I know, they might be coming out of the Charles River or Boston Harbor. Where does your water come from? Uh, the harbor. 
the Har- Boston Harbor. Yeah, I guess so. And I think that's kind of bad because uh, I think they should honor the fact that over 2,000 people gave up their homes so they get to drink water. Uh, that's a good thing for you when you go back. Ask around. And where does your water come from? Um, the uh, uh, the uh, faucet. Faucet. Where does your water come from? The tap. At uh, the tap. Where does your water come from? My water comes from the city of Boston. Thanks very much. You're welcome. And also from the Quabbin Reservoir. Thank you. <laughs> This is the idea. If enough people tell a story, it makes you say, gee, you know, this is nice that we have this. This is nice that it's here. What a wonderful asset. But look what it costs. Would you change it? Probably not. Would I change it if I could today? No. Because I realize there's a lot of people, two and a half million people are being helped. Would I be so selfish as to say uh, a few thousand people shouldn't be inconvenienced for two and a half million for a necessity of life? No. I often think back and wonder what would have happened to the valley if they had never flooded it? What would be there? It might be jammed up with condominiums and just be another town expanding with people escaping the cities. They made a beautiful place out of a beautiful place. Thousands of people enjoy your Corbin. Uh, it's a lovely place. It's very hard for people to change, and I find that I had adapted to that whole concept that that's what life is all about, is change. And therefore, I've seen life as a challenge rather than as a fixed place, even though I long for that fixed place sometimes. There's a friend of my mother's who said, we weren't angry people, we were heartbroken. And that's the way I feel. You still feel that way? Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Haunting the Quabbin by producer Sean Cole for WBUR's series Inside Out. It's the story of Dana, Greenwich, Prescott, and Enfield, Massachusetts, all of which were destroyed and flooded to build the Quabbin Reservoir so the city of Boston could have drinking water. This is ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. All in all, 2,500 people lived in the Massachusetts towns that were leveled in the 1930s. Let's get back to Sean Cole's documentary about the people who were forced to leave their homes and communities. There's something I haven't told you about the flooding of the Quabbin. Not all the land they cleared for it is underwater. A lot of it was leveled for watershed to keep pollution from leaching into the reservoir. So, for example, most of Dana, Massachusetts is still above ground. It's just woods and fields now, but the original roads remain, though no one's allowed to drive on them. Except once a year, when Quabbin management lets Earl Cooley and other former residents of Dana make a kind of holy pilgrimage to the site of their lost home. In July of 2003, they let me tag along. I met Earl at a gravel turnoff from Route 32A, where he stood, like a sentry, in front of a locked metal barricade to which he had a key. Well, this is a uh, reunion that we have on Dana Common. Past residents of the town and their descendants show up and we have a get-together on the common and uh, have a little picnic and talk over and go look at our different cell holes where we live. They visit cellar holes, 
That's their big walk down memory lane. Somehow, the idea of viewing a hole in the ground with nostalgia just epitomized for me everything that former residents of the Swift River Valley had been through. If nothing else, I was going to make sure someone took me along on one of these visits, so I could see it for myself. There's really nothing to see on the way into Dana. One tiny, official-looking wooden shack on the right, Potty Pog Pond on the left, some stone walls. And then, after about two miles, the road widens out into the eeriest place I have ever seen. It's a manicured patch of green, impaled by a few trees, and surrounded by an actual traffic circle. It is a town common in the middle of the woods, an untown, a place that so clearly used to teem with people, it's as though they heard us coming and ran off into the forest to hide. But then again, I'm with the people who lived here, as well as their grown children and their kids. At first, everyone is milling around, saying hello, pulling lounge chairs and coolers out of their cars. Most of them are collected off to the side. On the village green itself, Earl's daughters and son-in-law set up a narrow, white roof tent and a couple of tables under it for scrapbooks and photo albums of Dana. Then, Earl's daughter Anne Clark calls to her little girl. Kaylee, you gotta put out the flowers and water them. Take the flowers. You gotta go put them in front of the stone and you have to water them. Why, did someone die over here? <laughs> you do it every year, kid. <laughs> this is the monument that they planted, okay? Now you get taken, you gotta water them all up. Does it have to be empty? Yeah, empty it all in there. They need a good watering. This is what they did with the money they raised. They, um, wanted to put a marker here for everybody to know what it is and uh, from all these reunions they had this granite stone engraved and put up here. Can you read it to me? It says, Site of Dana Common, 1801 to 1938. To all those who have who sacrificed their homes and way of life erected by Dana Reunion 1996. We're being nice. Yes. With someone as young as Kaylee helping commemorate the town of Dana, you wonder if the story of the valley might live on after the last of its original residents is gone. Already there are people with little or no memory of ever living here who still claim a strong connection to this place. Joe Betts comes to this reunion every year, even though he was only a year old when his family moved away. I, I tell my wife, each time we come here, we come once a year, when we're driving in, it's almost, it's a strange feeling. and. Uh, it might sound melodramatic to say it's like I'm coming home, but there is a there is a feeling. And driving in and walking around this area where my grandparents walked and my mother walked, and, uh, right behind where you're standing was the Congregational Church. I was baptized right there. He points to a tree and a path running alongside it. No church. But to Joe and the others, it might as well be there. Like it left some aura behind they can still discern. Apparently, the cellar hole visits happen later on in the day, but I can't wait. I trudge a short distance into the woods to try to find one on my own. There, I stumble onto Florence May Avery, Earl's sister. She's pacing back and forth, searching the ground like she's lost something. What you looking for? Well, that's where our house sat, over there. Really? But I'm trying to figure out... I remember that tree. Her cousin Dot bursts out of this a porta potty at the end of the path and ambles was. over. Yeah, that's what. No, I was just looking over this way to see. Our house was over there. Mm -hmm. I was looking to see. At one time, I could tell by the lilac bush. You know? But I don't see the lilac bush, Dot. 
now because it's all different. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Everything's yeah. grown up now. Yeah, it's all mm -hmm. grown up now, but that's how I used to tell it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So it was is it a cellar hole that's visible or Yes, it would be visible if you could find it over there in the brush and I'm not going over there, but that's where it is. Yeah. As they head back up the path yeah. together, Dot and Florence fall into this perfectly symbiotic show? conversation yeah, well, as though they were one person talking to herself. Dot asks how Joe is. Florence shakes her head, says Scotty's taking care of him today. Which gets them both talking about all of the people who haven't made it today. Smaller group here this year, I noticed, than usual. Don't you think so? Carrington's not here. There are a lot of families that aren't here. That it, where is Elaine? Uh, she had surgery this past week, so oh, I think that might that, be a that, reason. That's because where she's gone. How big is it usually? What? Oh, I don't know. I've been here when there's been 45 and 50 people. But oh, yes. This least. is the smallest I've ever seen yeah, it. I, it is. Because there's a lot of Carrington's. And they aren't here. Yes, they aren't. Yeah. They aren't here. Some of the families aren't here today. They aren't here. So yeah. Well, how I can go and have my uh, lunchtime. 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 Where's Lois? She's waiting for her lunch. Lunchtime is full of chatty catching up. How you doing? How you doing? Hanging in there. Same way. Where's your chair? Where's Earl's chair? Like some? Everybody knows John. That was like 30 years ago. Quite a while ago. Charlie worked there. Howard Hastings worked there. And all in all, it's what I expected the event would be. Former Dana residents and their families talking about Dana, having some food. But this isn't the event. This is the meal before the event. At a certain point, Earl Cooley and his sister walk over and stand behind the tables under the tent. It's glad to see all your people show up here today on this beautiful day in July. I'll ask my secretary if she has anything to say to start off with. Oh, me? <laughs> well, you want me to read this first? No. Or do you want to? No, I... Florence is no longer Florence. She's secretary and treasurer. Earl is president. And together, they conduct a full-fledged town meeting in a place where there hasn't been a town since 1938. It's an untown meeting, complete with parliamentary procedure and one-year term limits. Now we got to have election of officers, so we'd like to have some volunteers for president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, whoever wants. Joe Betts raises his hand and says, I move that the secretary cast one ballot for the existing slate of officers. This happens every year. Somebody that wanted uh, this job. <laughs> and every year, the same officers, Earl, Florence, and Vice President Vernon Vaughn, are re-elected in a landslide. We'll take a, any more discussion on this. If not, we will take a vote. All those in favor? Aye. Those that refuse? No notes? <laughs> In a way, it's like we're kids playing a game at camp. Like they're just pretending to hold a town meeting, and I'm pretending to be a reporter covering it. Or more to the point, it's as though we're haunting the Quabbin. Living ghosts who return once a year to occupy an invisible church and a long-since incinerated town hall. Let's all give them to a hand.
Earl opens up the discussion to the floor, which in this case means asking people if they have any stories about Dana they'd like to tell. I asked him if people tell the same stories year after year, but he said someone always remembers something new once the group gets past its initial shyness. Oh, I just remember very well the first day I, I came to school right over there. And a lot of them say, well, I ain't got nothing to say. And then they say, oh, I thought of one, and they, that would start it. And the different ones would tell different stories of what they remember in the Corbin. Once these people are gone, they're gone forever. If we can only keep them coming, that'll be history years down the road to other people of what these people thought of the Corbin when they were there. I, I still remember that to, the, to this day, my first day at school, right down here. Mr. Betts, how about telling some of your stories from your mother? Well, <coughs> I was just thinking, uh, hearing about Dr. Seeger, and uh, I don't know if he delivered me or not. Would he deliver babies? Oh, I expect he had his hand in most anything. <laughs> <laughs> so much for Dr. Seeger. We'll move on to another subject. <laughs> they talk about making May baskets, gathering maple sap. Someone explains why the sharp corner on Skinner Hill is called Dead Man's Curve. A barber from North Dana. They killed on it and they named it Dead Man's Curve. Finally, Florence reads the minutes of last year's meeting, which sounds strikingly similar to what happened at this year's meeting had more fun stories. 31 people attended. Everybody enjoyed sightseeing and visiting. The gate closed at 3.30. Respectfully, Florence May Avery, Secretary and Treasurer. Okay, now what do we have to do? Well, I think we've had a story time, so if anyone wants to go riding, go. Look over your old cell holes and houses and everything. I scan the crowd, trying to see if anyone's wandering off to visit their cellar hole. In the corner of the common, an old man in a baseball cap climbs into his black pickup truck and starts the engine. I race to my car. As he pulls down a narrow, winding road opposite the one we entered from, I follow him. He's nowhere in sight for the first mile or so, but then I catch up. At some point, I realize this is the most detective movie thing I've ever done, and start to wonder if it isn't a mistake if this guy might not take kindly to being followed by someone he doesn't know. We drive and drive, with nothing around us but... Roads off of roads, stone walls, just lots of trees and grass on either side. It's just a dirt path through the woods. It's a long way to go to see a hole in the ground, but there's no turning back. We've already driven four miles, maybe more, when out from between the branches above us emerges a clear, open sky and the most beautiful, placid lake I've ever seen in Massachusetts. It looks like a storybook image of paradise, surrounded by trees, miles and miles of clean shoreline, hills jutting up out of the water like lock monsters. The road we're on vanishes at the reservoir's edge. The truck pulls over, the man gets out and just stands there, gazing at the quabbin. Hi there. How are you doing? Hope you don't mind my tagging along here. I thought you might be coming out to see where you grew up, but I, I guess... No, no, no. I uh, I come in here fishing a lot, and has it changed a bit. So, same old scenery here. What's your name? White. White, Gerard White. Gerard White. Yeah. And did you grow up in Dana at all? No, my, my mother was born in North Dana. Uh-huh. Do you come to this reunion every year? Pretty every year, yeah. I didn't make it last year, but I, but I do. I come here. 
quite often, yeah. Why, why do you come? Well, well, because I know a lot of the, the coolies and all of them, because I go, um, I go fishing with uh, Dwight Cooley. He's not here today. He's one of the, you know, Earl's brother. Gerard White doesn't have a lot to say about the valley or its having been destroyed. To him, it's just a place where his mother grew up. He seems more connected to what the valley has become than anything else. All my fantasies of him growing misty-eyed over the place where his home once stood evaporate into thin air. As we stand and talk, more people arrive. Earl Cooley's daughter Sue and her kids, Chris and Sarah. Some friends of theirs are here too. And Kaylee, the little girl who watered the flowers in front of the monument, and her dad. Uh, you won't hang around. As soon as I let him go, he's gone. Let me let him go? Yeah, I'll show you where to let him go. Okay. The older kids are playing around the water's edge, threatening to push each other in. Swimming in the reservoir is forbidden, although motorboats are not. Even dipping your bare feet in the reservoir is forbidden, which means that little Kaylee is now an outlaw. We've got to pollute the water to send it to Boston anyways. Why should they have good water? No, we have a radio from Boston. Oh. <laughs> By which she means me. Yeah, we won't tell them what the boaters do then when they come out fishing. You don't want to know when they're out here all day. <laughs> Normally, the euphemisms for peeing in the reservoir are a lot more colorful than this. Valley descendants will talk about sweetening or flavoring the water for Boston, as though it's a favor. The teasing and tickling and threats of dunking each other sort of escalate to this fever pitch. It's the feeling of watching someone juggle a water balloon back and forth between their hands. You can just tell something wet is going to happen. And then... One of them jumps into Boston's drinking water. Don't tell anyone what you're doing now. Hi, my name's Chris Martin. And I'm swimming in the quabbin. The funny thing is, this isn't Chris Martin. The real Chris Martin is still standing on shore. This is just a friend of his trying to get him into trouble. The friend stands up and grabs Sarah, Chris's sister, by the arms, trying to pull her in. Meantime, someone else jumps into the water. This is nice. Come on, Sarah. My underwear are all wet. Think of that, Boston, next time you turn on the tap. It stays like this when you wish you could superimpose the present onto the past, have the two coexist in such a way that the people of the Swift River Valley look up in the sky and see the dangling feet of their grandchildren above them. In a sense, everyone is still enjoying the beauty and simplicity of the valley, the richness of the river that gave them everything, and that took it all away. Two boats come motoring into view. The swimmers lazily pull themselves out of what will, in six hours, be pouring out of my faucet. The balloon's broken. All the nervous excitement has drained from everyone's body. A girl who's older than Kaylee, but younger than Sarah, starts hurling rocks into the water. One, and then another, and then another. Finally, the whole group pours itself into two cars and drives away, as a low wind kicks up miniature waves on the reservoir surface.
Haunting the Quabbin was produced by Sean Cole for the program Inside Out on WBUR in Boston. Inside Out's technical director and studio producer is George Hicks. The executive producer and editor is Anna Benstead. Whatever you're haunted by, let us know. All questions and comments welcome and appreciated. Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. And now, a haunting of a different sort. Sound artist Carolina Wheat says she's interested in the question of the body's demise and the soul's freedom. In search of answers, she spoke to someone whose ability to tackle questions of such gravity has not yet been impaired by things like reality and cynicism. Her young son. You were... Elijah... If you were to suddenly die in this life, where would you haunt? I would really haunt you. Wherever I was? Yes. Well, I don't know, but I would... Say hello to Homestar. Turn on the page of stuff right there. I would really just go to the bathroom. <laughs> you would, you're a ghost. You wouldn't have to go to the bathroom. Would you, like, hide in the bathtub and stuff? Yes. Would you try to scare me? With, or would you try to talk to me? Yes, I would try to talk to you, not really scare you. What would you say? Hi, Mommy. I know it's kind of weird, but I suddenly died in the morning. What do you I would, if you're sleeping, I would shake the bed. And the light. Or make the phone ring. Let's play, come on. Oh, that would just be a wake up. Yeah, okay. Sound how you would sound if you were a ghost. Mommy. 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 I'm a ghost. Help me. I think because I was in that nice little oasis in that restaurant. I was like, why Why don't you play with me? Really, why don't you play with me? Really, really, why don't you play with me? Really, why don't you play with me? Why? Won't you play with me? Can you see me? I'm right here. I mean...
let's play, come on, let's go play Brisbane, let's go to the park. It's summer, I love the dog. Come on, please, let's go play. Please. Elijah Haunt was produced by Chicago artist Carolina Wheat. One of Carolina's day jobs is DJing soundscapes at local bars. Elijah Haunt is from a series of soundscapes trying to answer the unanswerable. What happens when you die? This is Al Robert, and I've investigated over 1,000 haunting cases throughout the U.S. and England. We're surrounded on the airwaves by the voices of the dead. I've seen apparitions in there. We do believe that they are everywhere. Now we want to haunt you with a reminder. The Third Coast Festival is about to kick off its fall flurry of public events, and we want you to join us. We have something for everyone. A live Negative Land concert, a film screening of Sierra Leone Refugee All-Stars, a reading by visionary cartoonist Matt Madden, and our annual awards ceremony honoring the year's best documentaries. Come see what public radio people really look like. Comeovers and all. For ticket information, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. And as always, happy ghost hunting. Do you want to be? I don't want to see. Baby, can you feel on the floor? Shut the door, get the floor, there's ice. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.